Uh, greetings, my name's Adam Draycott and you are watching the online ministry of St Augustine's Anglican Church here in Inverell. Uh, this has been prepared for the 15th of August uh, 2021. Our sentence of scripture comes from Psalm 84. O Lord God of hosts, hear our prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Let's bow our heads and pray. God our Father, you have prepared for those who love you such good things as pass one's understanding. Pour into our hearts such love towards you that we, loving you above all things, may obtain your promises which exceed all that we can imagine. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.
as we come to the ministry of God's Word, our Bible readings come from Exodus 33, verses 12 to 23, Psalm 67, Romans chapter 9, the whole chapter. If you're in church and someone volunteers to read it out loud, uh, they might like to read Romans 9, verses 1 to 18. That would be enormously helpful. Take a moment to uh, reflect on those passages of Scripture. Make sure you read Romans 9. And even if you're on your own, if you read Romans 9 out loud to yourself, that's an enormously helpful exercise. I commend that to you. Let's pray. Loving Father, as we jump back into again into Romans we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak. You th we thank you that you answer questions that we have or might have. We pray that this time in Romans chapter 9 would be enormously helpful. Uh, grow us in our faith. Grow us in our trust in you and all that your, uh, your son has uh, worked to achieve on our behalf. We thank you that in him we have every spiritual blessing. So help us to trust you. Help us to trust in the work of our Saviour. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you like at keeping promises? I promise to do the dishes, to put the garbage out, to feed the dog. I, I promise I'll never do that again. I promise I'll spend more time with the kids. I promise I'll love you forever. Romans so far is grounded in promise. Romans chapter 8 has just promised that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can take us out of God's hand. Not even the curse. Nothing. In all of creation, nothing. Great promise. But of course, a promise is only as good as the giver of that promise. All of these promises... They only have value and security if God himself can be trusted. So can he? Can God be trusted? Or why on earth would you ask that, Adam? Well, think about Israel. Think about their story. That's what we're invited to do in chapter 9. If, is Israel evidence that God can be trusted or not trusted? You tell me. You know, you imagine the guy I mentioned uh, earlier in the series, imagine the guy in the peanut gallery uh, throwing questions, heckling maybe. Yeah, but what about? Yeah, but what about? He could get a job as a, a journalist, couldn't he? Uh, he, he appears at 11 o'clock for every daily update. Uh, but hear the question, and it, it's not a, it's a legitimate question, actually. So what about Israel? Tell us about that. If chapters 1 to 8 of Romans are true, what about Israel? Well, look at verses 1 to 5. They're going to show, if you're following the outline, we come to verses 1 to 5. Israel had every opportunity. All the privileges were there. All of the Old Testament signposts that point to Jesus are there. So verse 4, you could pick it up. The people of Israel, theirs is the adoption to sonship. Adoption is theirs. There's the divine glory. Glory is there. 
There's the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises, and it goes on. But not just that. There's verse 5 are the patriarchs, patriarchs like Moses. Uh, There's is uh, the human ancestry of the Messiah, ancestry that you can trace all the way back to Abraham if you open up Matthew's gospel. See, Paul is saying, Israel, it's all theirs. It's like numerous signs on a highway, signs that say, get on here. Get onto the freeway of the new covenant where the toll has been paid. We get a clear run uh, to God's glorious kingdom. They're all signposts. Get on here. And did they? Did they? Orthodox Jews still today flow down Bondi Road in Sydney on their way to the synagogue. Maybe not this weekend. That's a COVID joke, but not really a joke at all. But there they are. You can imagine them counting their steps and they will open their street directories, the Old Testament scriptures that point them to Christ and they won't see it. They won't see the Messiah that they desperately long for and so desperately need. And because of this, verse 2, Paul has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. You see, the elated confidence of chapter 8 turns to anguish in chapter 9. Verse 3, Paul says, I would rather be cursed. Very strong language. I would rather be cut off from Christ for their sake. Now, Romans chapter 9 has a lot to say about God's sovereignty and election. But those two big ideas, sovereignty and election, each of those do not ease Paul's pain for the lost. Here's an implication. The fact that God already knows, because he's sovereign or because he elects, the fact that God already knows doesn't mean that we retreat from evangelism. The fact that God already knows doesn't mean that our witness does not matter. The fact that God already knows does not mean that we do not have to extend ourselves in prayer, particularly for the lost. The fact that God already knows does not ease Paul's pain for the lost, for those who resist the gospel. They're the lost. And it must never cease ours. Verse 3 again. For I could wish I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. And when, he, when Paul is talking about his brothers, he's talking about those of his own race the people of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is cut off from God. Why? Because they're not connected to their Messiah, the Christ, who we know to be Jesus Christ our Lord. There are not two ways to God. There's one way. And that one way is Jesus Christ. He himself says, I am the way. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. And so apart from Christ, all are objects of God's wrath. And that includes those of Paul's race, Israel. Now you might find that unsettling because God made promises to Israel, right? And so the question is God unfaithful? And if the old covenant story of Israel proves God's unfaithfulness, what hope do we have as new covenant people? If God has abandoned Israel, what guarantee is that he won't abandon the church also? How on earth can we trust God? Back to that question. Because the great promises of the gospel are at stake here. Well, when we come to verses 6 to 13, uh, we, we could entitle that, it's not as though God's word failed. Why? Because it's always been God's intention to elect a people from within a people. Look at the last part of verse 6. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. That's instructive. Let that sink in. The United Nations do not determine a biblical view of Israel here. The United Nations does not determine a biblical view of God's people here. Don't be confused. God did not intend that all of racial or national Israel would be his. Not all Israel are Israel. There it is in verse 6. So verse 7, and then now Paul's going to prove it. Nor because they are Abraham's descendants are they all his children. And so then what follows are two examples that come from Abraham's children. Uh, two examples of election where God chooses a people from within a people. So look at Isaac is the first example in verses 7 to 9. Let me read the first part of verse 7. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. See, it's plain. Now, someone might say, oh, Abraham's children. What, what about Ishmael? He was a, a descendant of Abraham and said no Jew ever. <laughs> do, you see, do, you, do you see it now? It's not about race. If you want to make, make it about race, let's talk about Ishmael. But no, no one wants to do that. Uh, no, look at the second part of verse 7. It is through Isaac that your offspring will be counted or reckoned. That's it. Not a matter of race. Look at verse 8. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children. Can you get plainer than that? But it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Children of the promise. So who are God's children? Children of the promise to Abraham. Now, moving on. So it's not about race. We've affirmed that. It's not about natural descent. Paul's made that case. What's another option that we might go for? We could talk about works then. Let's talk about works. Look at Jacob and Esau, born as twins. Verse 11, Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Even before they were born, God has determined this. 
God shows grace and mercy to Jacob, but the older son Esau serves him. So think again. Does God's calling depend on a person's race, natural descent, blood in the DNA? DNA in the blood. Let me, uh, sorry. Let me say it again. Does God's calling depend on a person's race? No, it is by grace. Does God's calling depend on works or merit? No, it is by grace. That's it. God has always intended to save a remnant, a portion of Israel, a people from within a a people. Even from among Abraham's own, it's Isaac, not Ishmael. It's Jacob, not Esau. And that's why it's grace. It's why it's God's good grace. So again, who are the true Israel? The true Israelite, the true person of Israel, should I say, they've always been a recipient of God's grace. They've always been a recipient of God's grace. Chapter 2, verse 28 tells us, it's those who have had their hearts circumcised, their hearts, inwardly by the Spirit. Not the other part, the heart. People who belong to Christ as the forever king of the true Israel. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of grace. This is true Israel. And so God's word did not fail. It has always been his purpose to elect a people within a people. Does, next question then, does the doctrine of election, does it give you the willies? Because lots of people unsettles them. I think I heard... uh, Hugh Jackman once talking about his dad that was a Presbyterian minister, but he couldn't come at this doctrine of predestination and election. Anyway, chapter 9 should speak to him. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then, Hugh? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. God will be God. See, Someone that wants to oppose this might say, this is unjust. Is it a justice issue? Well, of course it's not a justice issue. Why not? Because we're all equally undeserving. That's Romans chapter 3. Paul has already told us. It is not a justice issue. Not if we are all equally undeserving. How can it be? We all deserve God's wrath. That would be God's justice. It's a wonder then that he saves anybody. But we've seen already that God is a gracious God, that he shows grace to whom he shows grace. He does what he likes because he can, because he's God. And so as in all things, God is sovereign, yeah, and sovereign in the exercise of his mercy and grace. It's part of his sovereignty. So verse 16, it doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on man's desire or effort. And this is verse 11 again. But it depends on God's mercy. Election, this doctrine of election where God chooses, it's about God's mercy. 
Now, someone might come back at me and go, well, well, why did Pharaoh get a dud hand? Well, answer, why not? That's one answer. But actually, Paul does better than that. He says in verse 16, it's so that God, he's citing Exodus, Exodus 9 now, uh, so that God may display his power in you that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. All right, so the point is that Moses gets mercy and Pharaoh does not. If God shows blanket mercy to everyone, we won't know what mercy is. If everybody gets it. But with Moses and Pharaoh, we see those two characters in history so that we can know God's mercy. So let me say it again. What is the doctrine of election about? It's about the mercy of God. And so implication. Do we see what is God's first concern? Is it my is God's first concern? Is it my choices? My hopes, my plans, my aspirations. Does God exist so that I can be free and authentic? Is God's existence and power and plans, is it all about me so that I can live the fullest, most abundant, prosperous life? Is God like a genie? I can rub his belly maybe when I need him or a rabbit foot of sorts. Is this what God is like? Or can I have a personal relationship with God. So that's different, isn't it? And my personal relationship with God, not where I want to use him, but where God's primary concern is to be known and praised and proclaimed throughout all the earth. Is that the God that you know? Is that the God you know and love and worship? See, that's verse 17, isn't it? Do you see what needs to change in all of us? Maybe like Pharaoh, our propensity is to be resistant to God and resistant to his purposes. Just thumb our noses at him. Because, you know, my priorities are more important, apparently, and so we become so me-centred. It's all about me, authentic me, free me, my rights. You get it. The Bible says <laughs> we need to be God-centred. It's actually about God's power, God's purposes, God's name, God's sake, God's glory, God-thinking. Was Jesus like that? Absolutely. How else can one walk the path of suffering if it was not all for him, his Father, and his goal to glorify the Father and ultimately to do the will of the Father? Are you following in the footsteps of Jesus at this point? It's God's first concern, your first concern, that he would be glorified. Do you care about his name, his honour, his reputation, that he would be proclaimed in all the earth? Are you supporting mission? Are we teaching our children to have such priorities that proclaiming the truths of the gospel far outweigh you, me, insert your priorities here, whatever they are. We need God 
centered priorities at the top of the list, not down the list. We need to proclaim his name with our mouth, with our actions, with our choices and be committed. And we need to find contentment and humility in knowing that God will be God. That God does what God does. And that's verse 18. God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. And he, and he hardens those he wants to harden. Here's another implication. If that bit wasn't already enough. Your salvation is based solely on the electing mercy of God. All we have is to throw ourselves at God's mercy. And it's not deserved. God, in his love, chooses us despite ourselves. And maybe that itches your pride. Well, scratch away. Or alternatively, it might be a comfort that knowing salvation comes from God's decision God's salvation comes from his grace, his mercy. It's part of his glory. And he doesn't change his mind. So if I'm his, there's no changing that. And if you know that that to be true in your heart, well, hallelujah, what a great comfort. You are his. Verse 19. Next question. Why does God then still blame us? It's like the witness in the court dock getting a hard time, and then he points the finger at the judge. The witness does that. Well, verse 20, uh, but who are you? A human being to talk back to God. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use, some for noble, some for not so noble? We've got to get the order right in our head. God is God. We are not. You are not God. God is God. So let God be God. That's verse 21. God can make a beautiful teapot or he can make a lousy cistern. God does what God does. The clay doesn't jump out and say, I don't want to be a cistern, God. I'd rather be a beautiful teapot. But the clay is not the potter. That's verse 20. And so why does God act like this? Why does God act like this? Why doesn't he just save everybody? Well, I've mentioned that. How do you know what salvation is if he just saved everybody? You wouldn't. It wouldn't be salvation. It'd be, I don't know what you'd call it. Why didn't God favor Ishmael or Esau or Pharaoh? The answer can only be because God has something even bigger in his mind to do. And it is bigger than saving everybody, if you can imagine that. What does God will more than saving everybody? Two things. Verse 22. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known bore with great patience objects of his wrath. There's the first thing. (laughs) You want to talk about election. You want to talk about uh, God's purposes. Have you ever thought of Pharaoh's stubborn resistance 
as a testimony to God's great patience. And if he's going to be patient with Pharaoh, of course he's going to be patient with you. So give up. Stop being resistant to God. Give in to him. Hand yourself over to him and trust him. Trust the God who loves you. The unbeliever's stubborn resistance promotes God's patience. That's what we see in Pharaoh. That God is a, a patient God, slow to anger, but abounding in love. He gives us every opportunity. So you really do have no more excuses. Turn to God. The believer's undeserved acceptance, though, that promotes God's mercy. Verse 23, did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory. We see patience. We see mercy. Verse 24, it's not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. That's Romans. Again, if God blanketly saves all, how else could we know of God's wrath or power or mercy? We'd have no need, no regard for him, no riches of his glory there. Yet the cross speaks volumes here. As God's wrath is poured out on his son, as sin paid for, such is his mercy, and Christ is raised in resurrection power, so that both Jew and Gentile might have peace with God, all to his praise and glory. Is this new or innovative? No, it's not. Verse 25, look at Hosea for the calling of the Gentiles. Oh, look in verse 27 at Isaiah for the saving of the remnant. Read that. See that it's not new or innovative. It's if it's not for all it's if it's not for God's mercy, see that all of Israel would have been obliterated. But see also if it was not for God's mercy, all of the Gentiles would have been obliterated, because that's what we all deserve. That's Romans. And if it was not for God's mercy to us, our future would be the same. So can God be trusted? Of course he can, absolutely, because he is faithful to his word and his promises, even though we fail to comprehend them. Uh, God is faithful. God's plan, God's word does not fail. It's proven in history. It's anchored in the cross. Can God be trusted? Yeah, because here we see Israel's part in light of the good news of Christ. Our roots then are Israel's roots. They are inseparable. We're sunk deep in Old Testament soil, even as Gentiles. Can God be trusted? Yes, because election reveals God's patience and his mercy and ultimately his glory and his concern for his holy name. Are you concerned about his holy name? Can God be trusted? Yeah, because our failure, whether we're a Jew or a Gentile, is not a reflection of God's. Just because we fail, don't think for a minute God does. God is gracious. He is merciful. He is kind. He is patient. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. And you can know that at the cross. So look again at the cross and know full well, with full confidence, yep, God keeps his promises.
chapter 9 we cover serious territory with important questions Uh, take a moment to ponder the passage read through it over again Uh, but also this is an invitation to be praying pray through the words of scripture Uh, you know one key prayer might be you know thank you god you're trustworthy help me to keep trusting you Uh, thank you god that you are merciful, that I contribute nothing to my salvation. Uh, Thank you for your grace. There's lots of things to thank God for. Uh, But most of all, we thank God for the work of his son, Jesus Christ, for the gift of his spirit in our hearts that makes us new, makes us right with him, and gives us um, the the guarantee, the guaranteed deposit of the hope that we have. Uh, Please pray for St Augustine's. We have an AGM. Uh, today on the 15th of August so pray for us pray for the Dean of our Cathedral and our Bishop as they navigate life Uh, there's lots of places with under stay-at-home orders we're impacted by that as 
well, not directly, but because people have travelled. Uh, church is tough. Going to church is tough. So you, if you tuned in and you're encouraged, then praise the Lord. Uh, it's it's great that we can still uh, church like this together. But don't don't neglect this one other thing. Make sure you're praying with those that you are with. Um, say the Lord's Prayer to get yourselves started, if that's a help, uh, or if you're by yourself even. Uh, but whatever the case, don't not pray whatever you do. And may God bless you as you do that. Amen.